This is a talk by Joel titled, Forsaking Yourself Day by Day, recorded May 27, 2001, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning, I'm going to uh, attempt to answer a question that was in the question box from a woman named Billy Yoakum, who actually I haven't seen here in several months, and I've been trying to reach her to tell her I wanted to answer a question, and I couldn't. And it's a very good question, so I decided, well, I'll go ahead and answer the question anyway, and hopefully it'll be a keeper as a tape, and then if she's interested, she can check it out. The question is, would you consider talking sometime about the art of forsaking oneself, what it really means, and how it affects the nitty-gritty of everyday living? And she uh, asked this question because she read my book, Naked Through the Gate, and I had quoted Meister Eckhart. And as you'll see, I'm going to read you the quote. This is what he recommends. He says, Meister Eckhart, We can think what we like, that a man ought to shun one thing or pursue another. Places and people and ways of life and environments and undertakings. That is not the trouble. Such ways of life or such matters are not what impedes you. It is what you are in these things that causes the trouble. Truly, if you do not begin by getting away from yourself, wherever you run to, you will find obstacles and trouble. People who seek in that way are doing it all wrong. The further they wander, the less they will find what they are seeking. They go around like someone who has lost his way. The further he goes, the more lost he is. Then what ought he to do? He ought to begin by forsaking himself. <coughs> In fact, Meister Eckhart is really just reflecting uh, a teaching of Jesus. And he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross day by day and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, a lot of people who grow up in our culture, especially if you grew up Christian or you're exposed to Christianity, and later in life perhaps you're looking for some spiritual path, and you run across a saying like that, and you think, gee, that's not a religion for me. I'm going to go look someplace else. And in fact, even Christians call this one of Jesus' hard sayings. Uh, they have trouble with it themselves. But let's take a quick uh, tour and look at some of the other traditions. Uh, for instance, if you then got interested in Buddhism, Buddhism's nice, you know, it's uh, non-theistic and you don't have to believe in everything and all that. But the Buddha said, cut off the ego with your own hand as you would an autumn lily. It's the same teaching here. So maybe, uh, maybe then you say, well... Uh, maybe I should check out Hinduism because Hinduism has all this devotion and they sing these nice songs to God and they, you know, this and that and they chant and whatever. Well, this is all true, but if you go really look into Hinduism, you'll find uh, sayings like this from Lali Shori, who was a great Hindu saint. She said, give up your aham, your individuality, eradicate your name and any trace of separateness. Well, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> You know, uh, 
Rumi is very popular today. Rumi is a great Sufi poet, and there are a lot of modern translations of Rumi. And Rumi writes about love and so forth and so on. So maybe I don't want to become a Muslim, but maybe I want to follow a Sufi path. But Rumi also says, no one will find his way to the court of magnificence until he is annihilated. <laughs> well, uh, maybe I should become a Jew. I mean, they have all these commandments, mitzvahs to keep and all that, but it's a very rich tradition, lovely tradition, and it's all centered around study of Torah, and I, maybe I really like to study things, so I could really get into the study of Torah and so mm -hmm. forth. But then I would run across a saying like this from Abraham Abu Lafia, who is one of the great Kabbalists, who are the mystics of Judaism. The Torah is not preserved except by one who kills himself in the tents of wisdom. <laughs> so, this teaching about forsake yourself in one form or another, you'll find that all mystical traditions, and in fact it is the core of all genuine mystical traditions. There are other kinds of religions and stuff that don't teach this, but at the heart of every mystical tradition is this business of forsaking yourself. And the reason is... That mystics say, not because yourself is a bad, wicked, awful, evil thing, but for a very simple reason. That this experience, this belief, actually, that you are a separate self, is the root cause of all your suffering. When you think you are a separate self, that can only be happy by getting things outside yourself, and you spend your life shunning or pursuing people, places, activities, environments, and things, you are going to end up suffering for the simple reason that all these people, places, environments, and things are all impermanent. So whatever you get and you hold on to, grasp on to for a moment, a year, all your life, eventually you're going to lose it. Including that little separate limited self you think you are. And everything you want to avoid, you may put it off for years and years. Old age, sickness, and death, you can't do it. So this strategy based on trying to enhance and protect this little self is totally futile. That's just, that's reality. That's not good or bad in any sort of cosmic moral sense. It's good and bad in the sense that suffering is bad. So if you do this, you're going to end up suffering. So what mystics say is there's another way to act in the world. The way to find real happiness, permanent happiness, abiding happiness, eternal happiness, is to realize, and this is the mystical part of mysticism, there is no separate self. You are not this self you think you are. And as long as you believe that you are this separate self, that is veiling from you your true nature, who you really are. And then each tradition has a different way of expressing that. God, Buddha nature, Brahman, the great Tao, Unsof, or if you want to use a generic term, consciousness itself. Not my consciousness, the universal consciousness in which all these people, places, activities, environments, and so forth, appear and disappear. 
So all mystical paths, all mystical teachings say, look into this self, and wherever you find something that you think is yourself, forsake it, abandon it, let it go. Now, that's easier said than done, actually. And the reason is because this delusion that we are a separate self is a very complex system of phenomena. It's not some solid entity. We often feel that we are some solid entity. But when we look into it, we see that it is actually not one thing at all. But it does develop and evolve, and it becomes quite complex. So I thought we'd begin here with taking a very oversimplified view of how this happens. And I warn you, it's very oversimplified, but sometimes it still helps to have some sort of diagram in mind. It helps for your practice, not just because uh, it's intellectually curious. So I've asked Tom here to assist me, and we are going to uh, construct this diagram as we go on the chalkboard here. The self is really, as I said, not a thing. It is composed of imaginary distinctions or boundaries that are created by the imagination, which we then take to be real. The technical term for that is that we reify these distinctions or boundaries. Reify means to take to be real. We mistake them to be real. A very common example is our dreams. When we are dreaming, our imagination is creating worlds. And usually, unless we are lucid in our dreams, we are reifying our dreams. There we are in the dream, and the, you know, the assassin is chasing us with an axe, and we're running, and it all seems very real. We wake up, and we realize we have reified this imaginative world that our minds have created. So, all this begins with one simple distinction. The first distinction. Please. This is the distinction between subject and object, I and other, self and world. That very first fundamental feeling of separation separation from form. This is something that we usually don't experience day to day in our lives. I mean, we don't get back to this first distinction because we're going to see there are a lot more boundaries built up. But occasionally we do. And if this has ever happened to you, you've had an experience of this naked first distinction. If you have ever woken up in the middle of the night between dreams or as you're waking up in the morning, and you become lucid, and there's a moment there, you, you, there's no experience, no sensual experience yet, hasn't arisen in consciousness, and you don't know who you are or where you are. Has that ever happened to anybody? Okay, that is an example of the experience of this first distinction. Inside the distinction, there is nothing. It is pure subjective awareness, formless awareness. And for a moment, there's just this sense, I am, 
But what is that I? I don't know. I don't know where I am or who I am or what environment I'm in or anything. And then form starts to rise. Phenomena starts to rise in, in consciousness. Usually it's uh, maybe body sensations or uh, sounds. You hear the birds outside. You know, you haven't opened your eyes yet. You know, And thoughts start to go. Thoughts are forms here, phenomena as well. And so this brings us to the second boundary and distinction we make, and that is around a body-mind. If you would, please. Uh, maybe as we go, you could label these. These first phenomena, these first forms arise, and the I am says, oh, well, this is what I am. Because who else could I be? Because there's nothing on the inside. But on the outside, there's all this phenomena, thoughts, emotions, feelings, sensations, sights, sounds, tastes, touch, and so forth, that we think, okay, this is me. Now, as I continue to wake up, I also then feel the sensation, part of his body, part of it I assign to the outside world to sheet. I'm touching the sheet, let's say, with my fingers, see? So, the outside boundary of body ends at that particular, in that particular instance, uh, at the end of what I think is my skin. Now, it's very interesting, and we're not going to go into this this morning, but you can try sometime this experiment of just touching something. It helps if you're in a meditative state. And see if there really are two things there, or just one thing, a sensation arising. It's our minds that cut that sensation in half and say, well, that is a finger touching a sheet. The finger belongs to me, the sheet doesn't. Physically doesn't. But if you go and look and examine, you won't find that that is your actual experience. You'll find a sensation is arising in consciousness. Single, non-dual sensation. So now I have a form. A form in a world of forms. Don't write anything out here, but I look outside of this body-mind and I see all sorts of other forms and so forth. What I also see are other forms, bodies, that appear to have minds. And if I'm a human being, we talk and so forth. And if I'm a human being, I can reify uh, along with these other human beings because we have conceptual thought and symbolic thought and language. We can create up a whole bunch of conventional boundaries, boundaries that are purely socially constructed. And we do it partly because once I'm identified with a body-mind, I am now identified with this body-mind's desires and aversions, the most primitive ones, hunger, thirst, <coughs> have to pee-pee, want to do the dirty deed, all those you know, basic, basic things. And so I start this career of wanting to satisfy these desires, and, you know, do all the things that I have to do here that I now have to do because I'm a body-mind to stay alive and to enjoy myself, enhance and protect. So I do, can do this in conjunction with other body-minds, all of which have the same structure. There's nothing in the center, but there's this kind of rind of body-mind on the outside. And we start to create a whole slew of, as I said, conventional distinctions. Now, a thinking mind is so creative, and if you look at human history and societies, you find there are innumerable ways. So I'm just going to mention some of the most basic that show up in most uh, societies, most cultures. The first one, and they're not necessarily in this order, 
but we have to write them in some order on the blackboard. The first one, and very common one, is an ownership boundary, personal possession ownership boundary. And so now uh, I have my physical body, but I acquire a clock. This clock is mine. It's in a kind of a boundary that it belongs to me now, and it don't belong to you. <laughs> and you better not cross my boundary and take this clock from me, right? Do you see how that's a kind of a boundary? And then in our lives, we build up a collection of things that we sort of incorporate into this larger conventional boundary, or houses, clothes, you know, whatever. Then we have kinship boundaries, which we share with other of these human beings, and we have a family. So I have a mother and a father, and I might have brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and so forth. These be are my family, and I am included within this boundary that I share with these other people. But that becomes part of then of who I am, my identity. Okay. So far we have four circles, each enclosing the other. So, do you see how this works? Do you see how the self is beginning to be built up out of these reified boundaries? But that's not the end of it, because as I get older, it gets even more complicated. Because then there are class boundaries. In this country, we don't think in terms of class as much, but this would be uh, also include things like your profession, your career, what you do for a living. I am a lawyer, I am a doctor, I am a nurse. I'm a garbage man. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, high or low. But we identify with a certain uh, role, social role, that we play within the society. And this becomes part of our identity. Particularly, I think, in this culture, if you've worked very hard to get a degree and to do this, you know, if you've committed your life to becoming a lawyer or a doctor, or a CEO or something, that becomes very important to who you are. Uh, then there are cultural boundaries. Ethnic, racial, national, I'm putting them all under culture here. And they determine lots of things. They determine uh, usually what language we speak, our primary language at least. They determine uh, how we identify ourselves in terms of our country. I'm an American. Someone else is uh, uh, Mexican or whatever. We may be proud or not proud of it. That's not the point. But we identify ourselves with this community, a larger community beyond the kinship community, and that also includes various classes. So I'm an American. Bill Gates is an American. And uh, Eddie, who comes to my door to collect cans, we're all Americans, even though our range of classes is, is great. And then finally... And the last, probably in some ways the most subtle, are ideological boundaries. That is uh, maybe religious, maybe philosophical. Uh, in this last century, in the last couple centuries in Europe, uh, it's become primarily, uh, or for a lot of people anyway, political. So I might be a communist, I might be a, a Nazi, I might be a, a, a Democrat, a capitalist. In our culture, I might be a Democrat or Republican. Those are the two, you know, uh, major ones here. And we may feel very attached to this boundary or not so attached to it. 
So we may very strongly identify ourselves as a progressive Democrat, and we put a lot of energy into supporting those sorts of causes, or we may feel ourselves to be very strongly a conservative Republican, holding off this tide of uh, liberalism that is, you know, eroding all the values. Either way, I'm not making any evaluation here. That becomes part of our identity, who we are. All these boundaries, by the way, as, as we progress out, especially after the physical boundary, uh, people can have more or less attachment to, more or less identification with. Not everybody has a strong attachment to, to all these boundaries. Okay. So now I have seven concentric circles, each of which represents these various boundaries. The interesting thing about these boundaries and what you identify with is they determine then, beyond the most primitive kinds of biological desires and aversions, they determine what you want and don't want in life. So they determine what you are going to pursue in life, what you're going to become attached to in life, and what particular form your suffering is going to take in life. So this is where it gets interesting and why people are so different. So let me just give you some uh, examples of this. You can maybe think up some in your own life. Let's say you have strong ideological boundaries. Let's say you are strongly a Democrat or strongly a Republican in this culture. If you are strongly a Democrat, then when Bush won the presidential election, you suffered. Oh, you stayed up nights. How could they do this? The Supreme Court stole the election. Oh, my God. You're writing letters. You're wondering if he can be impeached. What could you do? Now, when Senator Jeffords switched parties, you're elated. Oh, what a hero. What a, a man of conscience. And now, you as Democrats, we have the Senate. We speak that way. Now we control the Senate. At least we can stop some of the worst of the Bush uh, excesses. By the way, if you're a Republican, it's just flipped, isn't it? If you're a Republican, you were elated when Bush won. After eight years of that liberal, corrupt Clinton, thank God we have at least now a conservative who will get this country back on the right track. <laughs> and then when Jeffords switched parties, you go, oh my gosh, how could he do that? That traitor, that turncoat, it's going to be so much more difficult now. Your suffering and your temporary happiness, you see, depend on your boundary. Do you get what I'm talking about here? Cultural. Cultures, uh, usually your cultural upbringing, your cultural identification, one of the most basic things it determines is what you like in terms of diet, food, your food preferences. I'll give you a, a good example. Some of you have heard this as a personal example before. When I was in China uh, many years ago, uh, as a, a guest of the state, I went with a delegation of, uh, in those days I was very strongly identified with a, uh, a communist boundary. I was a Maoist and whatnot. And we got invited to China, and they served us, oh, the second, third night, the uh, greatest, considered the greatest delicacy in China. It's sea slugs. Sea slugs, I don't even know if they were cooked. They're little slimy uh, things. They look a little bit like these slugs that are in the northwest here. You can imagine picking one up off the path and <laughs> slurping it down. They do have a little sauce. <laughs> And 
this was not just me. There were, I was with a delegation of 12 other Westerners. And we knew that this was the great delegacy. And we knew this was a great honor. And, you know, the poor, the Chinese workers are slaving the peasants in the countryside. And they are feeding this as like a luxury. So we are doing everything we can to force these things down and push them around our plate and hide them under rice and, you know. Now, this is a culturally determined difference. They think it's wonderful. They desire sea slugs. If I never have another sea slug in my life, it'll be okay. Interesting... At the time, we also talked to our translators, and I was talking to this one guy, and we were talking about food and things like that, and his son had uh, gone off to Mongolia to work for a year or two. In Mongolia, they are cattle raisers, and he learned to love what we would call roast beef, probably, steak. Big slabs of red beef, you know, cooked out on an open fire and whatnot. The father was horrified. They like beef chopped up in little things, you know, cooked in lots of sauces. But a big raw slab of bloody beef, this was just barbaric to them. I happen to like roast beef and stuff, see? And then, uh, just to throw in a, a third thing here in the mix, uh, if you go to India, and now we've been exposed to a lot of Indian cuisine in this uh, culture, and I don't know how you personally feel about it, but if you just went from eating, uh, you know, McDonald's to India and got plopped down in a local little restaurant that didn't cater to Westerners, you would be having fiery hot vegetable curries that you probably couldn't eat. Literally, they'd burn your mouth. Now, you see, there's nothing inherently good or bad about any of these things. It just depends on the culture, whether you desire them and want them, or you whether you want to shun them or avoid them. And it's that identification, that cultural identification that determines this. Class, you know, as I say, classes in this country, the class lines are, at least the fiction is that they don't really exist so much. I mean, this class, in this country, you're, everybody's middle class, except if you're a transient, a homeless transient on the street, you're low class, and if you're Bill Gates, you're higher class, but everybody else is in the middle class, you know. But still, you know, you can uh, pretty start to get a picture of what class they come from. If they bowl, they read the National Enquirer, uh, you know, and if they play golf and read uh, the Wall Street Journal, you start to see what sort of class they're from. So again, these, these differences determine, uh, you know, these identifications determine who we are. Now, notice we don't choose these things like at a conscious level. You grew up in a class, you grew up in a country and so forth. But what we do do is identify with the boundary, and the boundary itself is imaginary. There is no boundary between two countries. This is very important to realize. You go up to uh, uh, Canada, and you get to a place, and it says you are now crossing to Canada. And maybe there's a fence there and a little uh, you know, marker or something, whatnot, but there's nothing in the geography. There's no boundary. We thought it up, and we impose it. Then we get down to ownership uh, or kinship. I love my mother, but I don't necessarily love your mother. Usually, our relationships with our family are, um, are deeper and more intimate. And even though we may fight within our families, when the family itself is threatened, there's some crisis, it pulls together. We relate more to our own family. That is part of who we are, rather than another family. And we get down to possessions, uh, 
you know, is, uh, if my car is stolen, I suffer. If your car is stolen, ah, I sympathize with you. You know, that's too bad and all that. And if I pick up the newspaper and I read about some stranger's car is stolen, I might think for a moment, gee, the crime rate's going up and I won't have another thought about it. <laughs> if my car is stolen, though, I'm going to have lots of suffering, you know. So again, you see what I'm getting at? It's the boundaries that determine what we want, what we are attached to. Because I'm not attached to some stranger's car loose in Springfield, but I'm attached to my car, as poor as it is out there. <laughs> You'll notice I gave it a bath, those of yeah. you who know my car, by the way. You won't recognize it. <laughs> You'll think I'm getting rich, I'm becoming a rich guru. <laughs> what? I was wondering why. <laughs> <laughs> Once a year. Uh, then body-mind. This is obvious one, you know. I, I suffer from my toothache. Uh-huh. And again, if you get a toothache, well, no, I'm too bad. You know, you might check out my dentist, pretty good dentist, but I'm not, I'm not in pain here, you know. So this determines our physical suffering. There's one exception to this, and that is the interior boundary. That simple sense of I am, pure awareness, but I am, and I don't know who I am, but I know I am separate, that itself is also the experience of loneliness, existential loneliness. Not my loneliness or your loneliness. Just loneliness because of separation. And fear. Fear the minute I begin to realize form around me is impermanent and dissolves away. Fear of annihilation. Basic fundamental fear that this boundary itself will disappear. And then who will I be? So that comes to the territory. These two most fundamental forms of suffering, fear and loneliness. And there's nothing about them to distinguish them as mine as opposed to yours. They're universal. Now, over time, this whole pattern changes and evolves and you might start out, for instance, uh, low class and you might... Uh, go to college and get a scholarship and you might end up being the CEO of a big corporation. So you've, you, then you might be in a lot of conflict, actually. This happens to people. So then what class do you belong to? You're going to remember your roots or you're going to belong to the new class you've joined, you know? Uh, your, your taste, your cultural food taste may evolve, you know? I started out liking nothing but the hamburgers and peas and mashed potatoes and ice cream. And eventually I learned to like sushi and, uh, and hot curries and things, you know? So this isn't fixed for all time, but what we do do is then shift and latch on to a new boundary. The times when we don't quite know who we are, a lot of adolescents go through this, we call it an identity crisis. And the, the way it's solved is by finding new boundaries. Now I know who I am. Over time, our successes and failures in getting what we want or keeping at bay what we don't want start to produce attachments. And that sets up self-centered patterns of conditioning. It's hard to see in yourself, but you people that you know well, you know what they're going to do. You know how they're going to behave. Because you know them well. They're, they're, it's just a pattern. It's a conditioning. It's like a program. They always go for what they want. And they always try to avoid what they don't want. And this can become very limiting in a person's life. It's kind of sad because then they will never try anything new because they always want to stick with what they know is safe and secure and whatnot. Again, some people have more rigid patternings than others, but we all have these patternings. 
uh, memories of the past and then fantasies about the future give us a sense of personal history. So I have an existence not only in space but in time. And I evolve. And maybe I'm very proud of the fact that I came from working class roots and I've worked my way up. Or maybe I'm very unhappy about the fact that I started out uh, with a silver spoon in my mouth and I ended up a drug addict or something. But we change and then that becomes our history. And then... Uh, and this is very interesting, and this is something that you can begin to see right when you start to meditate. Our thinking minds take all these elements and weave them into an ongoing mental drama, a kind of a soap opera. You know, it's, it's a continuing story. I call it the story of I. It's like all our lived experience gets translated into a meta-imaginary world that takes place in our minds. And that's made up of all these memories and expectations and likes and dislikes and conditionings and judgments and commentaries, and it's continually constructed. You just watch your mind anytime during the day or whatever, and you'll see how it continues to tell the story. The story of what? Of someone seeking happiness in this world, people, places, endeavors, environments, things, and whose strategy is to uh, push things away I don't like, to go for the things I do like, and to try to find happiness in this way. That is the story of I. And each particular person's story, of course, is quite unique. But, you know, I was in the film business, and they say uh, there are actually only seven basic plots. Everything you see in the movies is a variation of seven basic plots. Well, I would say from a spiritual point of view, it's all a variation of one basic plot. <laughs> but it has infinite variations. As many human beings are, that's how many variations there'll be. So, the self is not a solid thing. It's a series of imaginary boundaries which we identify with and reify. Now, I want to just note one thing here. There's nothing wrong with these boundaries. There is nothing wrong with the thinking mind. The problem is when we reify them, when we take them to be real. So, forsaking oneself means disidentifying with these boundaries, recognizing that they are imaginary and then saying, well, this is not who I am. Here's how the uh, great Kabbalist scholar Gershom Sholem describes it from a Kabbalist uh, point of view. He describes the whole spiritual path really beautifully. It is by descending into the depths of his own self that man wanders through all the dimensions of the world. In his own self, he lifts the barriers which separate one sphere from the other. In his own self, finally, he transcends the limits of natural existence, and at the end of his way, without, as it were, a single step beyond himself, he discovers that God is all in all, and there is nothing but him. See, this is the descent. The barriers, the barriers, the veils, are these reified distinctions. So we can think of it like peeling an onion. Now, then the question is, how do you do this day to day? To get right back to uh, Billy's specific question. This all looks good on a blackboard. It's interesting maybe to hear me speak about it, or maybe not, but whatever. The point is, how do we actually apply it? You need... Four principles, as always. Pay attention. You need to have a commitment to pay attention. 
You need to practice detachment and surrender. So let me just give you then a little breakdown of what this would mean. When we make a commitment to pay attention, what are we paying attention to? Well, if the self is the cause of suffering, the self is actually the core of suffering. So your greatest and most immediate asset is suffering. Day-to-day -day suffering, not waiting for the big C to come along or whatever, but the day-to-day -day frustrations, discontents, uh, aggravations, you know, whatever. They are great opportunities. We usually take the uh, attitude, I want to get rid of this, get away from it as soon as possible. But if you're on a spiritual path, you want to turn that around. Because at the bottom of some suffering is going to be some attachment, and that's based on some desire, and then you're going to find some boundary, and then you can see if that is really me. So whenever you get frustrated in the course of your day, ooh, precious opportunity for spiritual practice. Let me look now at that suffering. You look into it and you find the attachment and the desire or aversion it's based on. For example, let's say somebody at work uh, criticizes you. You're frustrated by that. You get a little angry about that. So right there you stop and you say, okay, so why am I angry? Well, part of my story of I is that I'm a very competent person. And this person is uh, mirroring me something else. So I'm getting angry and frustrated. I look at my thoughts and I see... Oh, I'm attached to this image of myself as being a competent person. Then you can practice detachment. And detachment simply means letting those thoughts dissolve away. If you don't continue to stir them up by adding to the story, fade to black. And then you can turn your attention directly on to the experience of whatever emotion you're feeling. And you can surrender to what is right now the reality of this emotion without the labeling of it, without the judgment of it, without the owning of it. So frustration is a little energy in my body, that's all. No big deal. And chances are if I don't keep feeding it with the story of I, it'll, itself will just dissolve away. This is forsaking yourself. You are forsaking here the story of I, the story of who I am. You can think of this as surrendering to the will of God or the unfolding of the great Tao. Rather than you're trying to impose on life what you want to happen, you're turning your attention to the very present moment and you're seeing what is happening. And by definition, from this point of view, what is happening is God's doing. That, by the way, doesn't mean that you then look at some situation like uh, exploitation of sweatshop workers and say, well, that's God's doing, so I guess I don't have to do anything about it. Because your response of compassion for sweatshop workers and so forth is also God's doing. So there's no way you can use this as a justification for not fulfilling your moral responsibilities in the world. But it does mean right now, if you are looking at something that let's say is uh, repulsive, let's say a homeless person who's sick and diseased in the street, and your instinct is to turn away, and I don't even mean physically turn away, inwardly turn away, 
You go the other way. And you surrender. This is what is happening in this moment. It doesn't mean you can't do something to make something else manifest in the next moment. But in this moment, this is true. This is here. This is reality. So this is what I'm surrendering to. And I'm not letting these boundaries and barriers interfere. Do you see what I mean? I'm just dropping them for a moment. I'm dropping the labeling of them. I'm dropping the attachment to them, to being out here and this person's there. I'm just dropping all that. Just for a moment, because, you know, we said this is conditioning. It's going to come back. Don't worry. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's going to come back. But in the beginning, sometimes it's kind of scary. <clears throat> then uh, a subtler thing is, and harder to do, is to pay attention to those moments where we do experience some fleeting kind of happiness. Because, see, we're highly motivated when suffering's present. When the happiness is present, we forget all about our spiritual practice, we just want to enjoy this. But eventually, you want to be able to do the same thing, not just when there's suffering, but when there's temporary happiness present. So if you're feeling proud of yourself, or you're feeling self-satisfied, or exaltation, uh, look at that and see how long it lasts. That's the first thing to observe. Is this really true permanent happiness? So let's say you give a presentation at work and it goes over very well. And all your colleagues uh, come over and tell you what a great job it was and your boss congratulates you. Do you know what I mean? And now for the rest of the afternoon, you're on cloud nine. You're flying high, right? This is wonderful. And then you walk out of there and you watch the story of I in the mind. It's saying, what a great person you are. At last, I'm on my way. And then maybe uh, I'll get a promotion. I'm going to get a raise and how I'm going to spend my money. The story of I so is cranking away. <laughs> so you do the same thing. You turn the attention to the story of I. You see it's a story. You detach from it. That is, you just let the thoughts dissolve. And you turn your attention on to the naked experience of what's going on. That'll be pride or joy or exaltation. You don't turn away from that either. But you feel it as just what it is, just phenomena in the body-mind. Without attachment, without identification. Oh, this is who I am or who I want to be anyway. And if you continue observing, you'll see, of course, when you get into your car and you start pulling out of the parking lot and somebody comes and smashes into you, all that happiness about the great presentations out the window and you're back to suffering. So then you repeat the whole process. Neither grasping anything, neither pushing anything away. Detaching really means letting the story dissolve because all these boundaries come out of our thinking mind. They are imaginary. They aren't real. And they have to be continued to be created by our imagination. If if we can stop that for a moment, they dissolve, they go poof, because they're not real. If you do this for a while, you practice paying attention to these things, practicing, making a commitment to do this, practicing detachment, surrender, you become more mindful, and you start to become less attached to any of these boundaries as they manifest. They still manifest. I mean, you know, you're still an American. You're not going to start speaking Chinese or something. <laughs> But you start to feel like the witness of life. And you're grasping after certain things, you're pursuing, and you're pushing away, shunning, weakens. You see, you're more and more in touch with this 
pure awareness at the center. It's sort of shining through a little bit more, you could put it that way. And then you begin to see that these things that appear that you like or don't like, you see them nakedly without the label that your mind has imposed, like sea slugs. Sea slugs are just sea slugs. You know, there's nothing in them that's bad. You can't uh, dissect them and you'll find, oh, this is bad. It's only my projection on, and only from my point of view. It's only relatively good or bad. The reality is the suchness of the sea slug, as the Buddhists would say. Uh, eventually, you see that the sea slug is actually a divine manifestation, as Meister Eckhart would say. Now, in this process, a lot of people then actually go through a period where they begin to wonder, well, if I don't desire anything, and I don't want to avoid anything, and I don't have any ambition, and I don't have all this drive and so forth, why do anything? And people can actually go through a period of apathy. Uh, sometimes, if it's severe, it's called a desert experience, or a dark night of the soul, St. John of the Cross, Christian mystic, called it the sensual dark night of the soul. There's another one that comes later. Very common on a spiritual path. If it happens to you, don't think something's gone wrong with you. So then you might try an experiment. You might try cultivating selfless love and compassion instead of self-centered action that's designed to enhance and protect yourself. And I am a great believer, particularly in this time and place, to try this as, a, as an experiment. This is not, you should be a loving, compassionate person. If you try to do it under that basis, you won't succeed. You will fail. You will be in a war with yourself. But if you take it as, a, as an experiment, what would happen if I substitute selfless action for action designed to enhance, enhance and protect myself. What would happen if I start acting for the good of the whole and drop all this worry about what's going to happen to me? Would it be true that the mystics have always said that that will actually bring you a joy or let me say it'll uh, unleash in you a joy. It doesn't bring from outside. It unleashes in you a joy that is coming from within, that doesn't depend on getting anything outside. And instead of experiencing suffering in life, you will start to experience more joy in life. Practicing love and compassion is the flip side of forsaking yourself. It's just really the flip side of it. And I don't have time this morning to go into more ways and specific ways to do that. But if you actually start to experience this secret, this open secret, as Rumi called it, it's better to give than receive. Not because you're going to get something later, because that letting go of the identification with the boundaries, that being uh, taking risk, that act of giving itself is the joy. It's and what you find out is actually coming out of the joy. The joy is already there. And then less and less it matters what happens uh, afterwards, how people react to it, whether they are grateful or not. Who cares? You've already reaped the benefit before you did it. And you're on to the next act of selfless love and compassion. And you're not looking back and you're not looking at the future. You're starting to live in this present 
that is the presence of divine love. And ultimately, you cease to feel that I am practicing love and compassion. All you have to do is relax these boundaries and you start to feel it flow. And then you start to feel what the mystics mean when they talk about all this is divine love. Simone Weil, a great uh, French mystic of the last century, said, you know, all we have to do is get out of the way. We can't love God. We can't even love other people. We have to get out of the way. And it happens. Once you stumble on this, everything turns around. Because now, instead of thinking, God, I have to forsake myself if I want to be in this path. I don't know if I let that go. You are looking for ways to forsake yourself. Every opportunity. You begin to feel all this as a prison, as a burden, as a constraint. And you can't just get rid of it by an act of will. It's conditioned. And you can't wait for it to drop away. Then you really get enthusiastic about your practice and so forth. Now, eventually, you do disidentify from these boundaries. Again, it doesn't mean you aren't an American at a relative level. You don't have a job. It doesn't mean you have to leave your job or anything else. It doesn't mean you don't have a profession. But you recognize, let's say, in a job, I am playing the role of a lawyer here, but that's not who I am. You recognize, yes, I speak... uh, uh, English and, uh, you know, I like rock and roll or whatever makes you an American, but that's not who I am fundamentally. And yes, I prefer, uh, uh, you know, roast beef or, or curry to sea slugs, but again, that's not who I am fundamentally. These are just conditioned patterns, just preferences. I'm no longer attached and identified with it. Eventually, you get back down to this last first distinction. In fact, why don't we erase now everything except the first distinction? So, you still have this experience, though, of separation. Being a witness of the world, you are witnessing. Here's you, the self, rather formless and amorphous, but you are still witnessing the world. Here's how the Christian author, anonymous author, we don't know his his or her name, of the cloud of unknowing, a great Christian classic. Here's what he wrote or she wrote about this. Long after you have successfully forgotten every creature and its works, you will find that a naked knowing and feeling of your own blind being still remains between you and your God. And believe me, you will not be perfect in love until this too is destroyed. So then the question is, we're getting down to the final stretch, how then do I forsake this boundary? And the problem is you can't. You can't because this boundary is you. The you that wants to forsake this boundary is the you that must be forsaken. So as long as you are there forsaking this boundary, you are there. Do you get the paradox here? This is the paradox at the heart of all mystical teachings and practices. It'll pop up in different forms. You'll hear it expressed in different ways, but it all comes down to this, this first boundary. If you try to forsake this, it's like trying to run away from your body. 
I mean, how would you get away from your body? You can't. You run away from your body, there's your body. <laughs> so this is why the moment that this boundary is seen to be imaginary, this last boundary, which is realization, enlightenment, gnosis, whatever term is used, this always happens spontaneously. Or we might say in the theistic traditions, by grace. It's not something, as the Buddhists say, that you can manufacture by human hands. Here's what Meister Eckhart uh, says about it. There is one work that remains proper in his own, and that is annihilation of self. Yet this annihilation and diminution of the self, however great a work it may be, will remain uncompleted unless it is God who completes it in the self. So, what can you do? Well, the answer is nothing. Literally, nothing. If, at this stage, by the way, this does not apply to earlier stages, oh, do nothing and it will happen. But when you're down to this, if at this stage you truly do nothing for one moment, then this boundary will vanish. <laughs> because it's being created by the thinking mind. You are creating it. These things aren't there. This is the whole point. The illusion that they're there comes from the activity of keeping them up. If all that just stops for one moment, it vanishes. So who are you? Well, who else could you be? You're consciousness. You're the chalkboard. There's nothing else for you to be. It becomes obvious. So completely obvious. Consciousness recognizes itself. Consciousness recognizes consciousness. Then, what happens? These come back. You don't have to just start <laughs> random. Of course they come back. This is the play of God. The divine play. More. <laughs> God's not skippy, you know, God. <laughs> but once you've actually recognized, you see, you're never fooled again. Now, already I'm using the word you, and it doesn't, can't apply anymore. There is no you. You can say consciousness is not fooled. But consciousness isn't anything but this divine play. The divine play is the play of consciousness. So this is why we're beyond words and concepts and thought and so forth. But again, it's not the problem that there are boundaries here and there's imagination and there are worlds and there's sensations and feelings and emotions and thoughts and everything else. In fact, they are all you, if you want to look at it that way. You could either say none of it's you or it's all you. Not just this is me, but the tree is me and the sky is me and the clouds are me and the fan is me and the cat doo-doo and the cat box is me. Yes, no. <laughs> And it's all a miracle. It's all a divine miracle. There's no more uh, grasping or pushing away or shunning or pursuing. What for? You've got it all. You are it all. There's nothing outside. There's not, how could you grasp something you already have? 
This is what realization is about. This is what enlightenment is about. And this is what it means to practice uh, forsaking the boundaries. And I hope this, uh, even though it's kind of an abstract scheme, though, I hope it helps direct your practice. Because this is the important thing, really. Because, as I said before, this is all interesting and whatnot. But it does no good until you start looking into your own life. You check it out in your own experience. Don't take my word for it. Don't take Meister Eckhart's word for it. Don't take Lali Schwari's word for it. Or Abraham Abu Lafia. You check it out and see. And from the very beginning, you can uh, start to verify it. When you start looking at your specific forms of suffering, your specific boundaries, and see if you can ever find any real boundaries. And then you check out to see whether uh, this leads in the direction of happiness, more happiness, or more suffering in your own experience. And that is what will convince you. Nothing I say. And the more you do it, the more you get convinced. Oh, the more you don't need teachings. The world itself becomes your teacher. So, Billy, if you ever get a chance to listen to this talk, I hope it was helpful to you. Okay, it's been a rather long morning. Let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay and have some tea and check out the library. Until we see you again, peace to you all.